0: Hello and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips and I'm joined today by Jack Wootten. How are you doing, Jack? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh dear, thanks for coming on. We're going to be talking to Jack about eels and a project related to eels a bit later on. But before we go any further, I want to very quickly send out a big thanks to our Buy Me A Coffee donors. So that's Polly MM, or Steve, Time Rice, Hawk Honey, Joe Fogey, Simon Davies, Martin Andrews and of course Heidi Hutton, being a member as well thanks so much guys it means a lot that you've uh, donated your hard-earned cash to us to help this podcast running so thanks very much for that guys but we're gonna start off with our recent sightings and as the guest jack you get to go first so have you had any interesting wildlife sightings recently
1: yeah well uh i was actually on uh lock uh, Aline and the uh, on the west coast uh recently and I saw uh it was a whole whole array of stuff really um absolutely incredible uh, nice uh sea eagle sighting seals and otters and uh, porpoises all on the same day so i was pretty spoiled i was slightly overwhelmed to be honest
0: <laughs> that is a good list of sightings <laughs>
1: Yeah, not bad at all to be fair. Yeah, a lot—that's um, the most I've seen for a long time. as all well, especially being, you know, sort of quite in the middle of a, um, either large cities or towns and villages all the time. So it's a bit more out there, and yeah, it's something special.
0: Oh, marvellous! Yeah, West Coast Scotland—it's on my list, and hopefully next year I'll be getting over there. But that's the plan. We'll see. Now, my latest sightings might slightly contradict with—well, it's an episode that's either going to be before this one or after this one, depending on how it works out but I did go up to Flamborough with Zeiss to film some stuff and saw some cool seabirds, so your fulmers, your kittiwakes and stuff like that. But I also went back up to Yorkshire, but I spent more time at Bempton Cliffs, the RSP reserve, and I saw gannets galore, loads of them, fulmers, kittiwakes, various gulls and shags on the water and stuff like that. But of course, anyone that's been watching social media around Bimpton will know there's been a certain large tube-nosed seabird, the black-browned albatross, known as Albert Ross. And, yeah, I may have seen them, that albatross, a couple of times or more. Um, but I tell the full story in the other episode, which is either before or after this. So <laughs> we'll see what happens there. I went to Sheppey and saw the scorpions that are there. That is wild scorpions running around. And locally, I've had the southern emerald damselflies. Which are recent colonists and the southern migrant Hawker dragonflies on my survey, so that's pretty good. And one last thing in Aberton, it's Wildlife Trust reserves, big rivers. There's nesting spoonbills, so that was wonderful to see as well. They've nearly fledged. I think they might have fledged now, but they'd nearly fledged when I went to see them last week. I think it was. So I packed a few bits in despite the horrible weather. <laughs> so doing quite well. Yeah, I can't quite top a. Well, oh, I don't know. Does albatross beat a white-tailed eagle? Ooh, there's a debate. I don't know, that you listed off quite a few species there, so I felt
1: like I had had a, a bad weekend rather than... <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is sort of two, three weeks worth of, if not, because I haven't recorded an episode for quite a while, so yeah, there's quite a lot of sightings there.
1: Yeah, I'd I, I take an albatross, I've got to say, yeah, that, that doesn't sound like a bad
0: day. The thing with the albatross though is it's a bit sad because he or she is on their own in the entire northern hemisphere, it should be down there South Africa, but you never know, maybe with some... Yeah, climate change-induced hurricanes <laughs> might knock a few further north, so he's got someone to nest with. It's sitting on the cliff quite a lot. Poor thing. I think it's trying to build a nest and trying to impress, you know, a mate that isn't there. So it's a bit sad, but it's surviving fine. It did get mobbed a bit apparently earlier in the year, but yeah, still, still wonderful to see though oh definitely yeah definitely yeah, i never thought i'd see a, a an albatross in the uk <laughs>
1: yeah you never know actually what you're gonna see now do you
0: so we've got you on to talk eels um i'll resist the urge to sing the mighty bush song which gets stuck in my head every time it's <laughs> the word eels uh, <laughs> so eels what are eels okay uh yeah i mean it's a uh...
1: You know, that's a big question, really. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's easier to answer what what they're not. <laughs> yeah, the the eel is uh, this this fish which is doesn't particularly resemble what people visualise as your average fish. Uh, it's elongated, you know, it almost stretched out, snake-like thing. There's not a lot of it that you'd pick out and say, yeah, that's that's the fish I drew when I was little, but. And there's always been misconceptions from very early on that it was uh, derived from a snake. It was snakes that went into water and then stayed there. There's there's been all sorts of things. But yeah, this is uh, really just a a slightly more primitive form of a fish. Um, And it's... A form that has been has survived for an incredible amount of time and is very very advantageous and means it can fit into all sorts of niches and take advantage of uh, of things that a lot of other fish or traditional shaped fish can't so yeah it's it's a bit of an oddity but in a nutshell it is a fish
0: it's possibly a form of neoteny which is where animals don't lose their larval form as adults so they think it's basically a fish fry was long and thin like a lot of fish fry like that aren't they and it just stayed long and thin and never turned fish shaped. But I don't, I don't know if, if you've heard this theory. Yeah, I mean, I mean,
1: well, I know we're going to get into the, the actual full life stage of the, of the eel later. But um, I've always thought that the actual, the very early stage, or I suppose the, the late larval stage actually is a bit more fish shaped than what it ends up with. And it goes through this whole weird cycle of, you know, it's the, the pre-larval uh, stage and then as it sort of goes through these later stages, it changes shape quite dramatically throughout its entire life. And so the, the species is, is really odd in that respect. But from this post-larval stage, it stays a very similar shape, like, like you were saying. And yeah, keeps it all the way up until it's fully mature.
0: When we say eels, we're talking European eel here, aren't we? Rather than any of the other fantastic forms you get of them. The the only freshwater one in the UK, aren't they?
1: They are. Yeah, they are indeed. Uh, so the only freshwater one in all of Europe as well. Yeah, there's uh, other freshwater species of eel uh, all across the world. And then there are your, your marine species as well. Uh, similar in, uh, in, slightly in shape, but there are like key distinguishing things uh, between them. And I, I guess... It's quite easy to probably mistake the freshwater and marine ones at a larger, you know, once they're sort of a good size. But the European eel, usually significantly smaller as a freshwater fish.
0: So we say they live in freshwater. What sort of freshwater bodies are we talking about? They're pretty amazing, really. They
1: can live in a ditch that is you know a couple of inches deep and it's absolutely packed with weed or they can live in a really fast flowing clean beautiful river up in the the headwaters and uh, they, they live in everything in between really they're, they're pretty unfussy when it comes to that and they actually monitor a lot of pollutants in the water through analyzing the fat content of eels because They're a long-lived species and they live within these water bodies and accumulate all the non-metabolizing compounds and they actually analyze the fat to look at the levels of pollution in a river and it's it's pretty incredible really so it shows that they can tolerate quite grim conditions really survive it and yeah they're they're pretty incredible in that sense i've found them in everything from yeah pristine amazing headwaters and then in a filthy little ditch with sewage flowing over it and you're pulling sort of wet wipes aside and an eel pops out so (laughs) it's uh yeah they're, they're amazingly uh, flexible when it comes to where they will live
0: yeah it's a traffic where obviously I've, I've seen them in a lovely stream flowing through a devon village and where's it? oh i saw them in a trout farm and there were hordes of them there's trout pellets being thrown in every day and they let us fish in one of the rearing pools because we won't catch anything in the the kiddie pool and i've pulled out this eel and they're somewhat slimy aren't they <laughs>
1: yeah definitely I think um, they're the nightmare of a lot of, of a lot of anglers and um, yeah because they, they are incredibly but you try and hold these things as well and because it's just a band of muscle you know wherever you touch on that both ends just go crazy <laughs> and you're trying to hold this thing where there isn't actually anything for you to hold on to so um, yeah I have that on a daily basis which is pretty fun
0: <laughs> sounds, sounds fun to me so what sort of size do eels grow to
1: well, within this this massive range, you, you know the European eel, you know that, that's a that's a big range, uh, Europe, and that all, that goes all the way down to northern Africa as well. Actually, they they grow at different rates, um, dependent. Usually on the on the temperature, and then obviously uh, the availability of resources within their immediate environment as well. But they can grow in excess of a meter. I've heard stories, and I've known people who have caught freshwater reels over a meter long. But the the standard that you would normally see when they're silvering. And like I said, we'll we'll go into the the whole sort of life cycle later, but this sort of pubescent stage, just before they're they're fully mature and they're moving back out to sea, this is when you'd probably see them at their largest. And I've I've seen them between 70, 80 centimeters is is quite common. So they're they're not small small fish and they can get some girth on them as well. The width of your forearm sometimes, some of these chunky ones who've had a, a great diet their entire lives and they've built up all these resources they need for a big journey. Pretty impressive. Cool, wow. So what are they eating? It's an invertebrate sort of diet at the start. And this usually continues all the way up to 30 to 40 centimetres in length. And then they move on to the fish then. They'll, they will still maintain a diet uh, with some invertebrates in there, but they do move on to a more piscivorous diet. And this really just, they, they've got to the stage and the size where they can actually tackle young fish. So this is just taking advantage of the ability to access a whole new range of, of food a whole incredible sort of next step in their life and this is yeah this is something that you see once you sort of get to that medium stage of 30 to 40 centimeters that that switch and that's when they you know they really bulk up as well well that can take an incredible amount of time you know if you're talking the, the north of Scotland where it's, it is it is not too warm and you've got some of these eels in high altitude, really cold headwaters. You know, they're not growing more than millimeters a year. They're growing incredibly slowly. So it can take them a long time to get any size to them. They're really going to just take advantage of any food source they can possibly get hold of. I did a really cool study when I was living in, in Northern Ireland on, on Loch Ney and we were looking at trying to find an alternative bait source for a fishery there uh, using marine discard and this was trying to utilize waste from the marine industry bring it into a freshwater fishery and see if we could find something that would actually help the efficiency of the the catch and also help them catch a larger size eel so the smaller eels weren't being hooked and then released potentially you know damaged or even dying we did this analysis and it is incredible how fussy the eel can be when given a choice of food it's amazing people always have these images of eels being sort of quite filthy and grubby, and uh, there's stories of them in all sorts of historic documents of eels being found in carcasses of horses that are rotting in rivers. But if given the choice, they will eat the the caviar of the food, (laughs) they are incredible. And we found that even freezing the bait We were blast freezing the same bait within an hour of catching it. It was fry that we're doing the comparison with. So we were blast freezing fry and then we're using fresh fry. And this was frozen within the hour and then the other one was hooked within the hour. And we put them against each other on the exact same day. And they were long lines running meters from each other in the same area. And on one line we got a catch per unit of effort that was 90% efficient. And the other one was zero there wasn't one eel and that was the frozen one they did not touch the exact same species that was on the hook the exact same catch that they were even caught in. it was just incredible really incredible we tested loads of different novel baits and i think out of about 20 lines that we ran thousands of hooks we i think we caught 14 eels <laughs> and it was just A night, honestly, that was one of the most stressful projects I've ever tried to complete. (laughs) Um, And it just showed how fussy these eels can be when given the opportunity to have a really sort of great food source and when you give them something that's of lesser quality.
0: So they'll eat anything, but given the choice, they're very snobby. (laughs) Which is not how you think of the eel at all. I just thought them as a, you know, grab anything they can move but they're obviously a bit selective with what they're eating depending on what it's about i suppose most animals will probably be like that to some extent but yeah Yeah, aren't aren't we you know aren't we yeah Yeah, it's only brand name stuff me yes only only from waitrose (laughs) exactly exactly Um, yeah So how long are these eels living? Because we, we did speak briefly before we had a chat about some captive ones that were quite long-lived, weren't they?
1: This is, a, again, a, such a, a cool animal because of uh, its longevity. You know, it, it lives for decades and, it, uh, you know, what it's trying to do is really, it's trying to grow and reproduce like like all these species that we uh, we talk about. And it has to get to a, a size where it can migrate and Sometimes, like I was saying, with uh, colder climates, higher altitude, it can take a long time to grow to this size, especially if resources are very, very limited. So finding an eel that is getting close to a century, it isn't unheard of. It's pretty incredible, really. To think of that as what, what people would consider a lower vertebrate, that's absolutely astonishing and this is again why it comes back into looking at this species for an indicator species within pollution zones and because because they're there for such a long time they're able to get a really great idea of a, a long period of time in that river and the pollutants that they've picked up over that period of time it's pretty cool really and you've got to have some respect when you see a really really big eel
0: You just think, that thing's well older than me. (laughs) I'm not exactly young anymore, but um, some of them are older than me, I think. (laughs) I know it varies a lot with conditions and temperature and stuff, but is there sort of a rough, typical age for a British eel before it heads back to sea? you know the the sexes as well mature at different times male eels
1: will mature at a smaller size females are larger and off the areas that i've worked you'd probably be looking at around about seven years before a male would go out and about 14 for a female but this is you know there's huge flexibility within that absolutely enormous but you go down to spain and you'll see eels that are uh, you know that they're not maturing as well when when they leave they're not in a mature stage they're in this like puberty stage so that's when we're talking about you know that's when we we know their age and then they make this journey but to get to that sort of puberty stage when they're just leaving these eels in warmer climates can take them three years it's pretty incredible how quick the turnaround is and obviously that's a big advantage you know you haven't got a risk predation you haven't got to risk every single possible danger that humans can throw at you all the way you know through your life you've only got to survive three years so that's very advantageous but they sadly don't really choose where they go so you get what you're given really if they take a long time to mature and get out then yeah that's really just what they do they are they're built survivors and they need to spend 30 40 50 60 years in a river then they'll give it a good shot
0: Well, we've hinted at it a few times, but let's talk this amazing life cycle they have because it's the opposite of most the marine and freshwater fish, whereas salmon and sea trout and various other fish live in the sea and then come back to fresh water to spawn and they do the opposite don't they
1: so we'll start at an egg hatching out somewhere in the sargasso sea and it's floating on the planktonic layer hatches out quite quickly into like a, a, a pre-larval stage this is very very small little fish drifting in the plankton layer and it then gets carried on oceanic currents back to the continental shelf of Europe and on this journey over it changes into this leaf shaped leptocephalus which is a really cool looking animal actually And they thought it was a completely different species i've got the tattoo on me actually that's how much i like it's pretty cool and it floats on oceanic currents and as it floats to europe it changes down into something that we would recognize more as an eel but it's completely translucent and it arrives at our shore as what we know as a glass eel this glass eel like i said it looks like an eel but it's just completely translucent and it waits for the right conditions to move up into fresh water. Some of them actually stay in in the coastal environment, but once they reach, this freshwater zone they start to gain pigment and when they gain pigments and uh, move up into this new environment they're known as the elva and elvers is something that usually people have heard of or would recognize and it just looks like a perfectly formed tiny eel the pigment changes dependent on the substrate which is in the environment that they're in if it's sandy they usually a much lighter color if it's dark and peaty and muddy in there then they usually go quite a bit, bit darker like a brown or a really dark green and they move up into this freshwater environment or stay along the, the coast and they they grow and as they grow they're known as yellow eel. and this is the longest life stage of the of the European eel it grows within this environment and it's feeding and gaining resources for you know as we're saying up to decades and decades long and once the the fat content is high enough once they've got the resources that they need to actually make a shot of this journey back to Sargassus sea they start to migrate back down these rivers that they've been inhabiting for years their homes and they're known as a silver eel and this is again this is such a cool looking animal and you would probably mistake it for a different species as well because it changes from what we know as the eel to this weird creature with huge huge eyes and a like metallic belly really like really silver you know sometimes we over sort of exaggerate these things but this is metallic silver belly and a jet black back its pectoral fins change shape its whole internal anatomy changes as well and it focuses all of its energy on you know its its motor skills to actually get it to the Sea, and then its reproductive organs as well so it has two functions you know get there and reproduce. So this silver reel starts, its, it's massive 4,000 mile journey back to the Zargasso Sea, and if it gets there, somehow by some absolute miracle, it spawns and then it dies, and that is the whole life cycle. So there's a million and one things that can go wrong in between there but it's absolutely incredible and this this spot in the sargasso sea we have we still don't know exactly where it is it's in a huge area that we we know that it's it must be within this area of the sargasso sea we've also looked at the chemical composition of the otoliths and people who don't know what the otolith is it's an ear stone and these are inside the head of the eel and if you extract them you can look at the years of growth the annuli like the rings of a tree you can look at the years of growth and each band represents a year of growth and within the zero band which is the band when it was you know that's where it was born that's that's its first exposure to the environment We've been able to actually analyze, I say we, nothing to do with me, other scientists. <laughs> they've been able to analyze the microchemistry compounds within this, and they've seen that it's actually got small traces of a volcanic chemical composition in there. So they've looked in the Sargasso Sea within the area and there is volcanic activity in this area, so it further hones in that they're definitely there, but we just don't know the exact pinpoint of you know the exact location. And I think that's, that. I think that's great, you know, even if we don't find it, it's just, I guess the mystery of it is just so delightful that we don't know everything about this species.
0: For those who don't know, so so Sea, it's east of the Caribbean, isn't it? Is that sort of region. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, a good
1: 4,000 mile journey. Yeah, you don't want to try and swim it anyway, definitely not. The
0: only sea in the world that's not bordered by landmass.
1: I mean, that's probably why, as well, why, we, you know, because it's hard to get to this thing. So it's covered in sargassum weed, which is where it gets its name from. It must be an incredibly hard place to navigate and to get to, and then to find a load of eels. <laughs> so I can see, you know, why it's probably not the easiest job.
0: Do we know how they navigate back there? Have we got any clues on that?
1: Yeah, there's all sorts of cool things as well that they do. And, you know, I keep saying that there's all these amazing things and maybe it's just me that thinks it, but they've got these magnetocytes and, you know, they're, they're able to tell the the direction in which they're swimming so they can navigate in that sense, similar to birds' migration. But there's these areas where they congregate. So the Azores is a place that they congregate. When they're travelling down as, as eels. they've noted that, they congregate off areas near the Azores and follow, Though well, the theory is that they follow then ridges, crevasses underneath the ocean surface and they use these to navigate their way to wherever, wherever this spot is or they use that as a partial navigation. So landmarks or, or something play a part in it, but we don't know how that actually corresponds to, they've made the journey, this is their, their backward journey, you know, they don't go back and to. So the landmark theory just seems, you know, it doesn't really hold. But they congregate in these same areas and it's it's just, I think it's just so fascinating that it's such a bizarre journey. And and this used to be much closer, you know, this is due to the continental drift and the, the, the ocean widening. This used to be much, much closer for them to go and make this journey to spawn. And over time they haven't really changed their spawning location, but continents have moved, which is incredible to think of that as a species which has survived continents moving and yet has maintained a spawning location. <laughs> There's very, I guess, niche things that the, the freshwater eels spawn in, you know, or, or have as their spawning habitat um, because they, they know this because they've found the Japanese eel uh, spawning site and it's on like a saline front where two different areas of salinity meet, um, creating, you know, temperature gradients, a really obscure currents, and it's also right on, again, a huge crevasse. And there's all these really odd and unique things that seem to be essential for the spawning ground of the European eel. See, this is mirrored across other species. So, you know, it's pretty incredible, and it must just be this really odd niche that they need and they're not going to change their ways. <laughs> the
0: larvae, they ride a North Atlantic current, isn't it? To get back to Europe. Yeah,
1: they're, they're riding these currents, and then once they get to Europe, then it's. I guess the timing of the year in which they arrive and their dispersal and the amounts, uh, you know, sort of when they've set off, uh, if it's been, you know, uh, very early in the season or or whatever, you know, I guess that has some determination on where they'll end up in a degree. They ride in these currents and have very little control of where they actually go until they get very, very close. And even then, you're probably the closest freshwater source is where they're most likely, the majority of them will go. So it's not really too much choice in the matter.
0: Eels used to be extremely common, as we sort of hinted at, but they've declined a lot recently, haven't they? I mean, since some figures I've seen is since 1980 they've declined by 90%. At one point they were 50% their biomass in the river and pests to anglers because every time they put the bait in they'd end up with an eel on it rather than the fish they after. Now we're at the state we're at now, which is where they're critically endangered, so... I know, I I think it's mad really and, you know,
1: we talk of the numbers coming back, so the, the recruitment or the young coming into the, the fresh water, we sort of term this as the recruitment of the eel and, you know, we're talking millions, some some rivers have runs of millions of eels and yet we're still talking about critically endangered species here and it is just the sheer extent it has plummeted by is, is pretty shocking and exactly what you're saying since the mid 1980s there has been up to 99% decrease in some areas of Europe and this is still really not well understood over these years Something catastrophic happened, and we, st- we still really can't pinpoint exactly what that is. But I think the main point that we have to focus on here is regardless of what that was, we're not going to ever reach the levels that we had then because the habitat is so degraded, because connectivity of the rivers is so poor because pollution continues, because there's an illegal trade for eels. We've got the species sort of on its knees at the moment, and yet there's still so many things which are affecting it coming back and thriving and and repopulating to a a substantial level or to something that we we recognize. And we're in real danger of hitting that, you know, the the shift in baseline syndrome, where in 30, 40, 50 years, we're saying, oh, well, there's thousands of eels coming into the rivers when i was young and that would be a terrifying thought you know we've already lost so much we need to get back to some sort of healthy population before the species just gets to a um, you know it's not able to maintain itself there isn't enough going out and there definitely isn't enough coming in there's so much work that's needed
0: It seems that weirs are a particularly big problem, aren't they? For when the glass eels are coming in from the sea, they can't get up the river, can they? I mean, that was, you know, when you were saying
1: saying about what was your latest sighting, I really want to say eels, but I tried to keep off the topic until we got into it. I was doing some work on the west coast, and... I'd, I had a great time. I just saw so many eels. It was brilliant. It was a weir that was stopping the migration of eels. And, you know, we're pretty late in the season now, but there were still thousands of these poor things stuck below a weir. An interesting thing there, actually, that, that I saw there was a, a parasite there, the multifilius, which is aquarium species. People know it as white spot. And it's a, a parasite that causes these almost they look like white heads on the surface of the skin. And these eels all had it. And it was incredible, really. And it was because they have been forced to stay in close proximity to each other in you know warm stagnant-ish water below a weir and they were constantly trying to climb up this thing and they just couldn't and it was slowly weakening them and weakening them and their immune system was getting lowered and they were all squashed in together in really sub-optimal habitat and these things are a nightmare weirs and and all the river barriers are a true nemesis of pretty much every single freshwater species in the world. Sometimes you can see these poor things like actually physically climbing up vertical concrete and these things I don't know I don't know if they're you know they're just wishing to stay on the wall or something but they're they're incredible at how far they get but the poor things always fall back down so like many species these river barriers are just such an issue for them
0: well beaver dams wouldn't be such a barrier but that's a topic for another day i think because obviously there's holes and gaps and streams going around and stuff river pollution we've mentioned so many times in this podcast with sewage and farmer runoff and stuff like that but one hypothesis i've seen in talks is they think the north atlantic current has weakened slightly which might have caused a slight drop in the elvers or diverted them elsewhere or something
1: regardless of if it's true or not as we stand now this will be a reality in well, it's a reality now. Things are changing in the currents within the ocean. And for species that drift or passively migrate on these, it's that's, that's disaster, you know, that's complete upheaval of species. And yeah, due to climate change and these currents changing and melting ice caps, warmer waters, these are things that are going to happen in the future. And... How do we solve that apart from consistently trying to better ourselves and lower our emissions to you know, make a much more substantial effort at reducing climate change impact? These are the things that we're going to have to really start to take seriously in the future, regardless of if it's true, if it's fact, if it's happened, if it's happening now. These things are going to happen in the near future, and you know how, how will that affect it? We could lose, the, you know, you were saying 50% of the biomass in historic times. Imagine losing even just a fraction of that the biomass in a river now the, the rivers are so fragile and degraded at the moment that we, we you know they really can't take another hit like that so yeah these, these are major changes that will affect the world and this is just a single species that gives a good example of that
0: It's a sad state of affairs. You mentioned criminal fishing, I mean there was a case, was it last year, year before, where someone shipped tons of glass hills to I think it was Southeast Asia and the fine was like a few thousand pounds and had it been drugs the boat would have been locked up for life. I know, it I mean that's it. I mean, if you're gonna smuggle class A
1: narcotics and if you get caught and locked up for the rest of your entire life or if you smuggle eels and you get a slap on the wrist what are you going to do you know, this isn't people playing around now this is organized gangs organized criminal businesses that are doing this now yeah it's not a small issue that single case yeah there's there's been a, a number of them over the last sort of five years which are documented pretty well and i definitely recommend people going and having a look for them because they're so interesting when you look at the sheer numbers which have been trafficked and this end destination is they're grown on within china grown onto a saleable size and then sold to japan which buys up i think it's 80% of the freshwater eel market in the world and within europe the freshwater eel you know the european eel it can't leave europe it's banned it's cites listed The fact that we're still finding European eels all across Asia and in markets shows that there's there's still a substantial market there and there's still a large effort to smuggle these things
0: because it's big money. Yeah, they're absolute fortune they're worth, aren't they? It's not surprising. I'll have to address the elephant in the room, or should that be otter and cormorant in the room? If you talk about eels declining with some groups of people, you get the, oh, it's, the, it's otter's favourite food, the otters must have eaten them all. Is there any evidence that cormorants and otters are impacting our eel numbers? No.
1: <laughs> uh, nah, <it> is, uh... <laughs> no, to, to be fair, when you start to disrupt an ecosystem you can get influxes or you can get you know peaks and troughs of predators booming and busting and that's nature. The, nature is self-maintaining. We don't need to touch any of that, we don't need to mess around with that, we've done that enough. I, I see pictures all the time of cormorants eating eels and that's because cormorants should eat eels. Otters should eat eels, and you know they're a favorite species of otters and i think it's absolutely brilliant as much as i love an eel i think it's brilliant though that it would give nutrients to another trophic level and that would maintain an ecosystem you know th- this is all about balance so i mean if we're looking to solve the crisis that is facing the european eel predators aren't on the list they're not even close to the list
0: you know we could get rid of every single one it's not going to solve the problem no no yeah. You must have seen a cormorant and heron trying to eat an eel. And I use the word trying. They swallow it about six times, don't they? and then it keeps coming back up their throat. <laughs> it is an amazing thing to see. I always think that well in, you know, if you eat that, I'm like,
1: yeah. you deserve to have that. Heard <laughs> it. Yeah. I'm struggling, looking like a fool, just trying to hold the thing. And they have to somehow eat it and keep it down. So,
0: <laughs> I've seen them just, I think it was a heron, just gave up and let it go in the end. I just couldn't get it down. I've seen that before as well, yeah. And this poor yeah. eel is he's just just about hanging on to life. He's swimming away with her. It like, looks like he's got a bit of a limp. but. <laughs> yeah, I think there's even cases of herons have died choking on eel eel. Herons have died choking on lots of things. Yeah, <laughs> i like, yeah. an
1: episode on that. I saw one the other day where a heron, had, an eel, had ruptured its way through. It, it just sort of ruptured oh, yeah. out as it was flying. And I, I don't know actually yes. know, what happened there, but it looked... I don't know who I felt more bad for. The eel that was falling 40 metres to its death or the heron that had just ruptured
0: something out like an alien film. So Yeah, I do remember seeing that photo. Yeah. Weird, yeah. I mean, that, that's not the way to go, is it? But of course, we should mention now: adult eels can go across damp ground quite happily, can't they?
1: Yeah, yeah, they have the ability to move across ground, and even you know, young eels, elvers. Glass, uh, glass eels don't have this ability to sort of climb as elvers do. But once yeah, they get to this elver stage, they they start to climb up things, and you can see them in big sort of strands or climbing over each other, trying to get up uh, the face of a waterfall or something. Or you see adult ones moving through wet grass. There's even records of farmers saying that eels use Used to steal their peas and <laughs> like coming into their fields and eat their peas i don't know if any of that's true but it's it probably just that they were traveling through the the field and a farmer wanted to say that his peas had been eaten yeah it is they're pretty pretty resilient even out of water
0: i've just got an image of a hare and a rabbit framing an eel in the field leaving the eel there running off and the farmer comes for i have be watching too much Peter Rabbit on the CBeebies, I think. It's not really the same uh, same story, is it, that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I've just written a children's book. Copyright, Neil Phillips. Nobody's stealing it. They're pretty amazing. The
1: Union Canal near us, um, it just ruptured out and exploded over one huge flood event, flooded into a forest. And we went down and did a big fish rescue and trying to find them. We were finding fish in trees and all sorts. It was, it really was a hell for fish there. And we rescued as many as we could. And we did sort of five days of this. And on the fifth day, we were still finding eels alive and they were just sat in wet mud. And they do this incredible thing where they sort of puff up their cheeks. They don't have these operculums, like you you recognize on a fish, like these gill covers. They don't really have those. They have these fleshy little sort of skin flaps over their gills. They puff these up. And it's really, really weird to see because they look like they're pulling a face at you. And they've got like these cheeks which are really puffed up. The the last two days, it completely dried up. So they were two days out of water, just in damp mud. And we're picking them up and they were almost lifeless. You could just about see small areas near the mouth and on the head moving. But the second they were back in water, that was it. It was like a switch had clicked, and then they were just off again. And they're so interesting. So they can make these journeys out to water. As a preference, they want to stay in. But out of water, they're still really amazing creatures, and they can yeah, put up with a, a fair amount of punishment.
0: They tend to go on land when it's damp. Is it the only British one that can do it to that extent?
1: Yeah, I can't think of any others that are as efficient as Neil, definitely within the, the UK. They're crazy. I mean, the ones we were finding, they were just about sticky they weren't wet you know they, were, uh, they had just maintained this not dry <laughs> so yeah crazy you
0: yeah, on their way to be an amphibian really aren't they pretty much yeah maybe maybe we were just interrupted like quick evolution yeah <laughs> eels amazing, but they've inspired you starting the Forgotten Fish Project. Yeah, do you want to explain what it is for those who don't know?
1: It's really cool and it's like a, a dream project, to be honest. I guess it's like a three prong type project. One is raising the awareness and the education surrounding eels so that more people know about them, more people find them interesting. You know, we get people out into the rivers to volunteer, to help, to see them, to understand them, and we do all sorts. We've, you know, created the Eels and Ladders game which is, I swear, when I die, that's the only thing people are going to remember me for this eels and ladders game. (laughs) It is like, it's been to New Zealand, Sweden, America, like everyone loves it and we've changed it for different species. So like the American and the, in New Zealand as well, we, we adapted it so that it fit their life cycles instead. People love that and we do all sorts of engagement stuff.
0: Very quickly, it's New Zealand, haven't they got like giant fish or real?
1: Yeah, so they've got the the long fin, which is meters long, you know, that thing, they're just incredible animals. Real big monsters. They seem so placid as well. You see videos of them just swimming by people's feet, taking food out of their hands. Uh, You also see them like eating a pigeon and stuff, so they're not that placid, but yeah, yeah, they're insanely big. They're not like as big as our congrioles, aren't they? Exactly, yeah, that that's sort of the comparison. And yeah, they're pretty incredible and really deeply tied into the Maori culture as well, which is a really amazing read and that should be something that people look up. It's it's so integral within their culture and I think that's a really nice example of how we integrate it or could integrate it really deeply in, into a country and, and how we sort of treat a species. You know, if I could get that level of respect in the Forgotten Fish Project, that'd be yeah. ace.
0: <laughs> it's partly because of the New Zealand ones, but there's a theory that Nessie, is a giant European Ill, isn't there that's grown to the size of a...
1: there's a really interesting thing actually so I think it was probably a stunt on the from like the edNA companies that were setting up because uh, what happened was they did like a huge eDNA, and people don't know what it uh, what this is it's just you take a sample of water out of say if you're in a lake you take loads of different samples all the way around it and then you send that off to a lab and they analyze it for the different DNA contents within there and then you can be able to see what's in there it's Something isn't in there you shouldn't get a DNA reading realistically. What they did with Loch Ness is they found a really really high abundance of eel DNA and what this was interpreted as was that you know it could just be a, a giant eel but it obviously isn't it's just there was a large quantity of DNA from the eels in there because there's a lot of eels in there. <laughs> it was so funny to read it's such a great uh, interpretation of science. <laughs>
0: I know someone who knows someone involved in that project and the person who did it was a genius because he basically got funding to eDNA all the locks in Scotland by sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek and get the funding was oh we can check and see if Nessie's there but if you give me the money I can do all of them and then get the interest of the Nessie side of things but then also sort of drag people towards the but look at all the other stuff we found in all the other look. it was quite a clever funding stroke public engagement exercise I think they need to be applauded for that one personally uh,
1: I thought it was great I read it and I was like someone has absolutely nailed this
0: <laughs> I've got to give them credit for that yeah so I interrupted your forgotten fish project you
1: uh, you did say you're taking me on a tangent as well. I did. Um, I did <laughs> yeah. So there's like the education and awareness side of things which goes with pretty much any conservation project. Now, any good conservation project wants to include you know the communities, inc- include people in the public uh, surrounding it. But then we've got a monitoring side of it. So this is using traps that were designed in the project as well to catch the, the recruiting eels coming in, and we're looking at different sites across the fourth estuary, and we're trying to really figure out less how many eels are we exactly getting but more which rivers are most important so we were looking for you know which of our rivers gets the most deals coming in and if we've got limited funding where should we focus this to have the absolute maximum impact and this is what we did you know so we went around different rivers and we set traps and we looked at recruitment over the migration period and you know we're able to establish which rivers were really essential which ones weren't so much Uh, we did coastal burns as well which was incredible we went away from some of the major ones and looked at tiny little tributaries or uh, you know just off main stems or small coastal burns and looking at the recruitment there so we delved into all sorts of the monitoring side of things and we also include within that some electrofishing surveys as well which are more tailored towards catching eels in areas that we know are good for eel abundance so that was just trying to understand that and, and figure out some of the, the size distributions of them and also the habitat preferences uh, as I said they'll live anywhere but there is preferences within the species so that was a monitoring and then finally we had sort of this direct conservation so none of the messing around of talking about it going out and actually doing it so the majority of this really actually was just barrier easement making weir's dams sluice gates passable for eels and this is there's a really interesting sort of point here that a lot of the wares that we were actually working on already had a fish pass on it but the pass was tailored to salmon or salmonids so you're really muscular really fast species that can power up you know really high torrents of water the eel has no chance and yet this is called a fish pass and it only allows a couple or sometimes even just one species of fish up there which is just i think just such poor planning so we went in there and we started adding all these eel ropes and then we also built actual full fish passes for every species so we had different flow dynamics we had different substrates we had climbing material we had everything you could think of for every different species of fish and we put these on major barriers on small river barriers from coastal burns to main stem rivers and tried to do a good mix of everything and we're still doing this now and yeah it we will never be short of a job we might be short of funding though but you know <laughs> we'll never be short of a job there's definitely enough ways to keep us going for the foreseeable
0: part of me just wants to get a floating bulldozer and just drive it down every river in the country and <laughs> that's one way to sort the weird problem <laughs> but somewhat oversimplifying and may cause some sort of flooding to people's houses and stuff. So maybe I won't do that. It'd solve a lot of problems for wildlife though, wouldn't it? Honestly, like, a point there
1: to make, I guess, is that
0: by no means
1: do we want to make a barrier passable. We want to get that barrier out, but it's just when we're a rock and a hard place, we have to make them passable because we're not allowed to take them out. But the real thing we should be fighting for with uh, making all of our rivers connected and getting this barrier easement really on track is just barrier removal. Uh, because it is it's the way
0: it really is and stopping people putting sewage in probably help as well but there we go <laughs> that's a whole nother
1: episode yeah. i mean that's that's not a tangent yeah that
0: is an episode <laughs> yeah. It's been absolutely fascinating to you, Jack. I know bits and pieces about eels, like most naturalists, because they're they're quite famous for their journey and stuff like that, but learnt lots tonight, so thanks for that. There's a website for the Forgotten Fish Project, isn't there? Do you want to tell people where to find that?
1: You go to the Forth Rivers Trust, and the Forth Rivers Trust is the uh, environmental charity which houses the Forgotten Fish Project. So you can either Google the Forgotten Fish Project, and it'll pop up, or you can go through the Forth Rivers Trust website, and you'll be able to find all the information on there. If you go onto the Facebook page of... uh, The Fourth Rivers Trust, as well. Uh, You'll be able to see their little updates that have been uh, added to it from the Forgotten Fish project as well. And there's all sorts on there. So it's well worth having a look. And the resources there are amazing, all downloadable. And Eels and Ladders, I'm telling you, it's a great game. So (laughs) if you're just interested in that, go and give that a download. But if there's any possible support that you wanted to give to the project as well we're really looking for support from small businesses and eco-minded businesses that want to support an environmental project so have a look and all the information's on there and you can get in touch uh, through there as well
0: yeah so do go check out the website guys it's well worth a look there's lots of good stuff on there having a good look yesterday Jack where can people find yourself on Twitter or Facebook etc pretty rubbish at all that stuff if mine (laughs) is
1: the main sort of contact for the project I just go through j.water which is w-o-o-t-t-o-n at forthriverstrust.org, so you can get in touch via email on that I'm more than happy for people just to find me on facebook find me on whatever platform they actually use and i apologize if i'm not on there that much but <laughs> yeah email is probably the best way to get hold of
0: me well all i can say thanks again for coming on i think that's about it for me as well guys for now goodbye and see you next time
1: thank you for listening to the uk wildlife podcast if you enjoyed this episode then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on apple podcast or whichever podcast service you use
0: you can follow us on twitter at uk wildlife pod or one word
1: or on instagram at uk wildlife podcast
0: and like us on our facebook page uk wildlife podcast and you can also post to the uk wildlife podcast community group
1: if you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on instagram or twitter then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag uk
0: and you can now support us through our buy me a coffee account which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash uk where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme head there to find out more This episode was edited by by Neil Phillips. Her music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.